The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right. Welcome. Disability Law Show. We are back at it. Good to have you along. John Scholes here. As always, Tamara Gopian here to educate you. She's the one with all the answers. Anytime you want to reach out, by the way, when we're not doing this hour, you can do so. one 855 the email address we always use. And for quick and easily read, concise memos, anything about LTD or Wondering with a wonderful menu, boxes, very simple to use. It's like Lego. You can just read them really quickly called ltdfaq.ca. But uh, there are tomorrow. We got a lot of emails to get through, a lot of, uh, a lot of people reaching out uh, today. But you always start off with the case of the day or week that was. What do you got cooking, pal? Well, this week I've been really focused on uh, a particular client's situation that I wanted to share with our listeners. You know, oftentimes I find these things can be helpful for others who are listening in. And this has to do, John, with the the timeframes around when a disability claim should be made and what an insurance company might say about the time in which you've asserted your disability claim. So just in general uh, you know, just for some generality, some context, my client has, uh, you know, some significant physical and mental health issues. He sort of suffered through for a while, had one of these jobs where it was like a base plus commissions. Anyway, long story short, his employer suggests to him to go off and obtain EI sickness benefits. And this is a government-sponsored plan similar to EI if, you know, you're unemployed or uh, have otherwise been laid off. But there's an element of it for sickness individuals who have um, or who are not able to work as a result of their health. So he embarks on the journey of applying for EI sickness. In the end, obtains something like 15 weeks, which I think is the maximum. And then goes back to his employer and says, look, you know, I, I'm still not well enough to work. My doctor is saying we need to do further investigations on my health issues. What do you suggest that I do now? And they suggest to him, look, you should apply for long-term disability benefits. Here's the package. You should go ahead and apply. And when he does that, he gets a response from the disability insurer saying your short-term disability claim has been uh, submitted late. So you're late. You're out of time. We'll look at your long-term, but your short-term is late. And then, of course, not two weeks later, he gets a denial for the long-term claim. So I thought this was instructive because it highlights a couple of things. For one, you know, most people need to understand and appreciate that there are strict timelines actually around when you can apply for short-term disability benefits and as well for long-term disability benefits. You shouldn't just assume because you applied for one that you're automatically going to be approved for the other, even if the short-term period is done and you're expecting to just simply transition over to long-term, get that confirmation from the insurance company in writing. And if it's two different insurance companies, or let's say it's your employer who does short-term and insurance company does long-term, make sure that you've satisfied the application timeframe for both so that you're not actually compromising your ability to have benefits under both plans. Because as as you would imagine, short-term disability is typically only for either 17 weeks or 26 weeks, so about four to six months, and then long-term kicks in. So what ended up happening within my individual situation is that they denied him on a technicality, John. So they said, look, your short-term claim was 12 days late. Okay. That's 12 days. I mean, I know it's absurd, right? It's just absurd. 
And so uh, again, you know, we're we're in the process of challenging that because then they were very quick on denying the long-term disability benefits as well. And so what I wanted our listeners to understand is that even if you're faced with a technical decline from the insurance company, you should understand that that might not be the end of the line. Some people will be discouraged by that and think, okay, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. You know, I, I didn't meet the deadline and, I, and it's done. No, no, it's not. <laughs> insurance companies have been um, met with resistance from the courts. Judges have said, look, if there's a reasonable explanation for the delay and it's really not that long and it hasn't really compromised your ability to review and assess the disability claim, then courts will grant in, in claimants what's called relief from forfeiture. What that means is that it's a relief. It's a, it's a way for the court or a judge to forgive the fact that you weren't technically compliant with deadlines that might have been contained in your disability policy. So look, I don't want to get too much into the legal speak, John, but I thought it was a helpful takeaway that even, it, first of all, your employer should be advising you better, let's be honest, about the timelines around this and where to apply. They're supposed to give you forms and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the onus is on you to make sure that all that stuff is in front of the insurance company at the right time frames. Keep a paper trail. You know, if you've got to mail something in or fax something in, keep the fax record, you know, make, make it sort of, you know, registered mail, this kind of thing so that you've got the tracking ability so that the insurance company can't say, oh, look, you're, you're 12 days late. It's a, it's a bonkers position anyway. So we are definitely going to challenge that piece of it. But you can see that it then had a very quick denial of the long-term disability benefit as well. And so you don't want to tempt the insurance company to then very quickly also deny access to the longer period of time that you might get benefits for, uh, again, on the basis of a technicality or a cursory review of your disability claim. Because really, with my particular client, it was a very, very difficult time for him. It still is. Um, he's still off work. He's still under treatment. But what has happened is he's lost the financial support that he was expecting to get from the insurance company, John. And so then the employer turns around and you know makes all sorts of noise about him having to pay benefits. There's all sorts of things that are happening. But at the end of the day, you know what the insurance company will know when we've asserted that legal claim against it is that these technicalities just simply don't hold water in the eyes of a court or a judge when there's right. a reasonable explanation for it. And in my guy's situation, he was hospitalized for part of that time, by the way, and some of it had to do with his employer. So there are lots of good reasons why he didn't meet those 12 days. Uh, and I can assure you that that's not going to be the end of the conversation with the insurance company. We're definitely going to get past that technicality and then really talking more meaningfully about the disability claim itself. This cannot be a rare thing. People, for whatever reason, a legitimate reasons, missing that, missing that, uh, that deadline. I mean, it, this has got to be a very common thing. So there's got to be some leeway as far as that's concerned, no? Or at least you're pushing well, for it. So I think it's worth pushing, most certainly. Okay, and so yeah. I think if you're listening and this is resonating with you, I think the explanation that you can provide it would be very helpful to the insurance company, or at the very least, to formulate the basis as to why the insurance companies refusal to forgive this lateness is is actually a, a problem. Um, because what it comes down to is, does the insurance company have enough information in a timely way to consider your disability claim? We talk about terms like prejudice. So was the insurance company's ability to review your disability claim prejudice by virtue of the fact that there was some slight delay in your application? And I can tell you that there are some instances where courts have forgiven months and months of delay, John. 
Not that I want to suggest that this is the way people should go. Don't assume that that's going to be your situation. You want to act promptly and you want to be aware of those timelines. That's that's my biggest message to people. But just because you've received that technical decline doesn't mean it doesn't warrant having a conversation both with the adjuster, possibly with your employer, and then, of course, a disability lawyer. I mean, it doesn't hurt to have one of us look at it, John. You know, our consults are free. Just a quick phone call. I can review you the facts, look at what the insurance company has said to you, and see whether or not we're able to act on your behalf. Um, because you're right, it, it, it can happen more often than I care to admit. And insurance companies have gotten really, um, one in particular has challenged uh, quite a bit before the courts uh, about, you know, oh, well, we didn't, we never got your long-term disability application, even though we knew about your short-term claim. So they mm. have argued, you know, you're not entitled to long-term. Guess what? They've lost both times when they've yep. brought that issue over to the courts, right, John? So, you know, I, but, but if you're, if you're an individual sitting in that, in that position, when you've made the application, you're dealing with all your health issues, you're thinking, gosh, this is just a technical issue. How is it that, that the door is closing on disability? What can I mm-hmm. do? You have options. You do have options. That's the main takeaway here. You always reach out, always have that conversation. one 821 5900 to reach Tamar and her amazing team as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Lucas, interesting email here. Tamar, I want to get into this one. It says, uh, hey, Tamar, I've been on disability benefits for almost a year while waiting for surgery for an old knee injury. A coworker mentioned that there's a possibility that the company may be sold soon. If I do lose my job, does that put my LTD claim in jeopardy? Mm, really good question, Lucas. So the, the short answer is no, it shouldn't put your LTD claim in jeopardy. But let me explain a little more as to why this is significant. So the key issue for individuals applying for disability is that your disability claim effectively crystallizes and it almost is set in stone the moment that you assert that you're not able to work as a result of your health. And whoever is the disability insurance provider on that date at that time is the one that's responding to your disability claim, regardless of whether or not your employer changes that insurance company as the provider down the road. It doesn't matter as long as you're on claim. In fact, it may not even matter if you get declined and you need to pursue that claim. That claim is still with that insurance company, regardless of what happens with your employer and their choices around whether they continue the package, the group benefit package, that is, with the same disability insurer. And There's actually rules and regulations around this, John, that insurance companies don't like to talk about, (laughs) but there's like, you know, a a regulation and some policy and some like guidelines that insurance companies are are given saying that individuals shouldn't actually fall, you know, between the cracks. There should be some continuity of coverage for them. So it's either one or the other, but in Lucas's situation in particular, if he's if he's been on disability and that's what he's saying he is, and it's been, you know, almost a year and he is receiving his disability benefits, regardless of what's happening with his employer, he still has coverage. He still has entitlement. So long as he continues to meet the test of total disability, his benefits should continue. But you might say to me tomorrow, well, what happens with other coverages? That's a whole other kettle of fish, right? Because most employers, what they're offering is a whole package of benefits, That can include extended health, life insurance, disability, dental, all those other other elements. Those are the things that might change and may be in jeopardy for Lucas if the employer either closes shop and therefore doesn't have employees and and benefits at all, 
or changes carriers of disability insurance and other types of insurances. So what you want to understand if you're Lucas is you want to understand very clearly, how is this going to impact me? Let get, get something in writing from the employer about those changes and whether you have the option to continue getting your own package individually and what your choices are so that you're not left in the lurch at the end of the day without having, let's say, medication covered or other treatment that you might need. And with that, we will take a short break. There's so much more to go. You want to send an email anytime. In fact, it might end up on a future show or this one, possibly, right? one 821 5900 Email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you want to ask questions of a different sort using your phone or your tablet or your, uh, your keypad at home, that's fine mydisabilityquestions.com. That website's been crafted and been up for some time. It's easy and it's searchable too. So a question like yours may already be in the archive. You can uh, you can search for it first, right? Mydisabilityquestions.com. With that, we will take a short break and lots more. The Disability Law Show is coming right up. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, we're back. Thanks so much for hanging through the break. Disability Law Show. Tamar Agopian is here, always ready to uh, to talk to you, put your mind at ease and educate you, right? That's the uh, the biggest thing with that first phone call is just getting your bearings and learning a lot as well. one 821 5,900, dealing with a uh, bad insurance company, you've been asked to appeal or you've been cut off altogether, a lot of stress. It can mount up really quickly. Feels like a David and Goliath situation, but don't worry. There's uh, there's always a way to reach out and uh, get some help. That phone number as well, help at disabilityrights.ca. You know, uh, tomorrow before the break, we were talking about Lucas's email benefits, uh, you know, old knee injury, waiting for some surgery, and the company might be sold. Is there a severance slash workplace issue to, to go along with this as well? Good question. And I think that there could be. So if you're on disability and you find yourself in the unfortunate situation that you might lose your job, you might be thinking to yourself, gosh, you know, what is that going to do in terms of compensation? Does that have an impact on my long-term disability benefits? And it's not a straightforward answer, John. I mean, yes, it could, but what it comes down to is actually what your policy says, your disability policy about what kinds of credits the insurance company can get against your long-term disability benefit. Let me explain that a little more. So what these disability policies will say is, you know, here's what we will pay. Okay. Usually it's, you know, two thirds of what you're making before you stopped working. But if you come into other sources of income or benefits that are related to your disability, then we get as insurance company deductions or reductions against the LTD benefit we're paying you for all these other sources of income and benefits. The one we talk about most often is CPP disability. What we talk less about though is, is severance included in one of that, you know, those listed items the insurance company could get a credit for. So you lose your job, unfortunately, you're paid some measure of severance, maybe, maybe not. Um, and we've got a whole other show about severance and, and employment benefits. But just yep. sticking to, you know, what does it do for LTD? If you come into some money from the from your employer by way of severance, you want to understand very clearly whether or not your insurance company is actually going to get a credit and is entitled to a credit. Because if it's not actually enumerated, if it's not listed in black and white in your policy wording around getting that deduction, then actually the insurance company is not entitled to it. 
So you should be aware that they're going to ask you, obviously, oh, look, we've, we learned that you're, you know, your company is being sold. You've lost your job. Did you get some money? You know, you do have an obligation to be open and honest with the disability insurer around that, but be aware that if they're that, then saying, oh, you get a credit, well, <laughs> you want to understand well, what does my policy say? Where does it say it in my policy that you get that credit? Because sometimes the severance can be quite significant, John. And it can be for a number of months, and it, it may be so significant that you stop getting your LTD benefits for a while, right? Until essentially the insurance company takes that credit. So what I want, I don't want to see happen is people are listening to the show and thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to get a severance and stop getting my LTD. No, not necessarily. Not unless you've educated yourself and reviewed the policy and have actually asked the insurance company to point to where it is that they're taking that credit. Because otherwise, my view of it is you should be entitled to both. And if there's a challenge to be had, you should be having it, especially if your severance is quite significant. And again, always reach out here for answers. That's why I uh, simply asked that question, because I knew somehow that you would have a, a quick answer for everybody, because for the most <laughs> of us, we have no idea what it's all about. So there you go. So if, if let me ask you this, if someone's off on disability, should they communicate with their employer? I guess I say that if it's more than you know three weeks or a month or even two months, should they keep in contact? And how often should that happen? Good, really good question. So this is the part where people are really not sure, you know, what, am I obligated to tell my employer something? Do I have to keep them updated? Let me pull back here and just sort of, you know, open the curtains a little bit and show you what's behind it, which is the insurance company does have an obligation to talk to your employer. They, they have to tell your employer what's happening with your disability claim. And so there is some communication there happening. You may not know about it, but there is, I can assure you where the disability insurer is updating the employer about the disability claim. What you might find is if you get a letter from the insurance company, sometimes at the very end, you can see they've copied your employer with parts of it. And so your employer theoretically should be kept up to date without you having to also keep your employer up to date. Hey, by the way, my benefits got approved. Hey, by the way, my benefits are being extended by another three months. You know, this sort of thing. You would think, the insurance company would let the employer know. But that's the high watermark, right? Like it doesn't always happen this way. And so, you know, what can you do as a claimant? What should you do? Your employer is obligated to know, generally speaking, what your prognosis is. When can they reasonably expect to have you back at work? Okay. What your employer is not entitled to know is the details as to why you're off. In other words, your medical information and the basis for that medical information. At least while you're on a disability leave and you're supported and getting your benefits, employers not entitled to that info. So what the insurance company will do is if they send you a letter saying, you know, we've accepted your disability on this basis, perhaps they give you an explanation as to why you've met the test of total disability. Sometimes they'll actually remove those parts of the letter, John, before they send it to your employer because they know they're not entitled to share that info with your employer. But if you're sitting there as a claimant, and you're like, look, I've been off for two months. And then now I get this email from my employer saying, hey, can we get an update? Yeah, you can You can provide them with an update. That's okay. Um, you know, try and do it in writing if you can. And your employer may say, look, we need a medical note for our file just to confirm that you remain unwell and not able to work. That's okay too. You know, sort of a brief uh, medical note or some kind of form to, to be completed by your doctor is also okay, as long as it's fairly consistent. And as long as your doctor is also aware that the details are really meant for the disability insurer, not the employer. Here's where it becomes difficult though, John. If those updates are far too frequent, if those updates in and of themselves are challenging the claimant for being off, 
or perhaps putting them in a situation that's really impacting their health, then I think it can start to get a little dicey and problematic as to how much contact is, is necessary with the employer. This is why it may be helpful if you are supplying some information to your employer about where you're at, your status, and so on, you might want to get your doctor to just say, hey, by the way, and I'm going to reassess my patient in two months, three months, four months, whatever the time frame is, so that it can essentially give your employer a signal that, hey, nothing much is expected to change for that period of time. And that sometimes will hold off the employer from asking for further updates, right? Because they know you're not coming back anytime soon. They don't have to do any sort of return to work planning with you. And it keeps the employer at bay. But it's just, thing it's, that we, yeah, it's just ahead, a simple, John. a simple note would do a simple email uh, to your, your exactly. uh, supervisor, whoever say, Hey guys, still off and need any problems. Let me know. Talk soon. But that's it. Exactly. Because really, right? yeah. the last thing you want to do, John, is ignore that as well. Right. Because the opposite end of it is on the employer side if they don't get responsiveness from you, they may assume you've abandoned your job, that you're just simply not coming back ever. And you don't want to compromise your employment in a way like that, even if you are on a supported disability leave. So don't assume, conclusion, don't assume your disability insurer is always keeping your employer apprised. If the employer is reaching out to you, a simple response is just fine. If they need anything from you, put it into context as to what it is that the employer in fact really needs. And really what they need to know is, is there a likelihood for you to return next week, basically, or the week after or in any time in a short period of time where they have to make arrangements on their end to either put you back on shift or create a workspace for you or whatever the case might be. The other thing that I wanted to add, John, is that and I think you may have already mentioned it at the top of our show. We've got this really helpful website, ltdfaq.ca. I really want individuals to think about, look, if you've got issues, you might want to just check it out there. We've got actually a memo coming on that website on communications with your employer specifically, what to say, what to expect, you know, what's the, you know, what's reasonable in that context. So if this is resonating with you, please take a quick peek. We've actually got a bunch of really helpful memos on that website, but this one in particular about how to communicate with your employer we decided we would just put a little brief thing together, John, as a resource for individuals who might be looking for some guidance. Maybe they feel shy. They don't want to call us and talk to us. That's totally okay. Lots of information out there for you to access. And like Tamar says, it's so simple. It really is like Lego. I mean, anybody can use this thing. That's the way it was constructed and designed. Again, ltdfaq.ca. But email address, slightly different, help at disabilityrights.ca. Also easy. Use that anytime you would like. And as I mentioned uh, before, maybe our email will end up on a, a future show. Tyler is up next tomorrow. Let's uh, see what Tyler has to say. He says, guys, uh, does my insurance company need to make sure I can get another job before they cut me off at the two-year mark? My foot was amputated due to an infection a few years back. I've been struggling with my prosthetic and skin lesions ever since. I can sit at my computer or watch TV for a few hours, but moving around and doing basic things like driving are really hard. I've always worked in physical jobs, which is now out of the question. What are the insurance company's obligations in my situation? Wow. Yeah, tough, tough situation, Tyler. So let's start up by the basics, okay, John? Every disability policy that I've seen typically has what's called the change of definition. There is one test to qualify for the per first part of the, of the claim or the period of time that you're disabled. Usually that's two years or 24 months where the insurance company is going to assess whether your health is preventing you from returning back to the job or occupation that you were doing at the time that you became unwell and your health prevented you from working. 
So bringing this back to Tyler's situation, you know, he describes a foot amputation and a physical job. You know, it's not a leap to sort of say, yes, that does render him totally disabled from his own occupation. But then what happens? He tells us what happens at the two-year mark tomorrow. Well, at that point, the test to continue to qualify for benefits changes. And under most disability policies, the test is, look, is there any other occupation you can do? Anything for which you've got the basic education, training, and experience that would put you in a job not paying what you were getting at your old job, basically paying you roughly what you're getting as your LTD benefit, which we know is usually about two-thirds. And so what are the insurance company's obligations in a situation like that to find you another job? And unfortunately, the harsh reality, Tyler, is they don't have to find you another job. They just have to justify that you could find yourself another job. It's, it's really a difficult scenario for individuals to think about because of course, in Tyler's situation, it's very clear that he's got an ongoing quote-unquote disability. He's got limitations, physical ones. And that analysis then for the insurance company becomes that much more important, right? So the onus is on the insurance company, John, to do that analysis. That's on them. The courts have been really clear about that. So they have to look at Tyler's background, education, training, experience. They have to look at what his LTD benefit is, and they have to try and identify types of jobs, types of occupations that would fit within his experience and training and what would be an appropriate income level for another job for him to do, okay? And then they have to put that in writing to him and explain that to him and say, this is our explanation if they're going to cut him off. And so if I'm Tyler, I really want to have a lot of transparency around that process. I want to understand what medical information do they have? Do they have a full picture of all of my limitations and restrictions? You know, when can I expect to receive that letter and that decision from the insurance company about these alternative occupations? Because if the claim is coming to an end, but his doctors are still supporting that he's got ongoing limitations, then I'm sort of scratching my head too, right, John? This is really where we see a lot of people come to us about challenging the disability insurer because they've got these ongoing health issues, and somehow the insurance company has justified cutting them off. I think what's concerning me a little bit with Tyler's description in his email is that he's saying to us that he can sit at a computer and he can watch TV, but really moving around and driving and so on, that those are the challenges, naturally, to totally to be expected. So what he needs to bear in mind, and what I'd be thinking about if I'm in his shoes is, frankly, what is the insurance company going to say about Tyler doing a sitting down job, what we call a sedentary job. Are they going to try and justify that he could sit and answer some phones and be totally fine and do that if he's able to actually sustain some capacity to do that at home with, with his you know computer and so on? So that's the kind of medical information he really needs is he needs something that's responsive to that level of sedentary uh, work. And with that, guys, we're going to take a short break. Thank you so much, Tyler, by the way. If that answer didn't answer all of your questions, you know what to do now. You've probably heard the show. In fact, that's why you sent the email. You can reach out to Tamar and her team, 1-855-821-5900. There you go. We'll continue more. Disability Law Show is coming right up. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. Still a few minutes to go. Want to remind you anytime you can send along an email, it might appear on a show. It's going to get answered anyway, but we might use it if it's uh, interesting and helpful on this uh, our radio show as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number, you can use that, one 821 5900 Tamara Gopian is always there, always ready to give you the detailed answers and some assurance that his help is just really a phone call away and an email away as well. Any other questions can be uh, asked and answered. They will be answered, mydisabilityquestions.com. Things do not linger there very long. In fact, they're answered really quickly. You might be shocked, but you could use that anytime you would like. It is free and anonymous. We, uh, we sometimes talk about this, uh, tomorrow and that is if, if someone's kind of, you know, well, not kind of, but if they are disabled from working due to a motor vehicle accident, an MVA or someone, uh, other incident resulting in an injury, can you and your team help them? We don't always cross over into that type of thing, right? It's true. We don't, we should though, John, because we absolutely can help. Absolutely can help. There's no limit to, uh, us doing that kind of work related to disability or related to personal injury. In fact, I, you know, I used to start, I started out doing that kind of work, John. Uh, I still do a bit of it. There's a bunch of individuals at our team who do it as well. But for those who might be listening, they might be thinking, well, how is it different? Well, it's not really that different. There is, so most of the disability claims that we deal with are not necessarily related to an accident. So in other words, people develop health issues that prevent them from working. By all means, disabilities can occur from all sorts of different scenarios, and that can include an accident or an injury. So it could be a fall on a on a sidewalk or a mall. It could be a motor vehicle claim. And when you've got situations like that, that give rise to different types of claims, not only just a disability claim, potentially with your disability insurer, but also first party prop, you know, first party motor vehicle claim. In other words, accident benefits, which are benefits that you can get from your own auto insurance company, along with what we call tort claims. So if someone caused the accident, if someone caused your fall or injury, then there could be a potential legal claim against that individual or that company or corporation for damages, basically pain and suffering and other uh, elements like loss of income. So I think I want to talk about it more generally because I think people put these kinds of claims in boxes. I don't know if yes. those boxes are quite right, right, John? They, they sort of have intermingling impacts. In other words, you know, there's income sources, particularly in motor vehicle, not only from the individual who caused the accident, for example, as a tort claim, but also, you know, an income component against uh, potentially your your own auto insurer for what we call loss of income benefits or income replacement benefits. And mm -hmm. then also you can make a, a long-term disability claim or a short-term disability claim in a context like that. And what I find generally speaking is that some, you know, information, legal information out there from either personal injury, you know, form, firms or disability firms don't actually always talk about how they all work together. These are all valid claims. If your uh, disability is arising from an accident or an incident or an injury that you've suffered. So I don't want people to shy away from getting further information. And then it's just a question of, you know, where where do we direct those applications? Where does the paperwork begin? How does that move forward? You know, assessing whether or not all those sources of income or potential compensation elements have been reviewed and considered. And so I think that if you're in a situation like this where you're like, I don't know where to begin, um, please don't hesitate to give us a call as well. Our consults are absolutely free. 
we can set you up with individuals who have the expertise, uh, myself, along with many others at our team who have been doing this type of work for years and years and years, and we'll suggest you look, okay, this is where we start. This is the, the starting point, for most likely a disability claim along with an accident benefits claim. Let's say, for example, perhaps putting the tortfeasor on notice that there's mm-hmm. a potential legal claim there. Lots of different things that we need to start out right out of the gates. Um, and then we will go from there moving forward on seeing where that compensation can, can, can come from. And if there are barriers or, you know, let's say a denial, say even for disability benefits, then we're right there as well to pursue further rights on behalf of a particular client in a situation like that. It, it's interesting too, because it makes me, what you just said kind of brings about something we haven't taught, uh, talked about for a while. And I, I'm wondering if this is part of that uh, that compensation as well, if, if it's to a point, motor vehicle accident or otherwise, but we'll focus on that because that was the question. But if you need things like uh, be, as a result of your accident and your disabilities, you need retrofitting in your shower, your bathroom, maybe a, a mother, father, spouse, child has to help take care of you every day. Can you claim for those benefits if they're, you know, if they're, if they're, taking time out of their day, say every absolutely. day to help take care of you. Is that part of the coverage as well? It, it is. So it absolutely is, John. Yeah. In the motor vehicle realm in particular, let's focus on that in particular. Okay. There's actually a, uh, I, I want to call it a head of damages. It's not a head of damages, but it's, it's basically a bucket. Let's call it a bucket of compensation that can come for individuals who are supporting you with your care uh, that are perhaps helping you uh, with taking you to to medical appointments, perhaps transferring you from the bed to the shower to the bed, you know, that kind of thing. Adjustments being made in the home if there's mobility issues that have cropped up as a result of your your accident. And those things can be compensated absolutely under a certain bucket uh, of compensation that's available uh, specifically for motor vehicle claimants if you've got the right type of coverage for that. And so, you know, what's different about it, I suppose, is that as if I compare it to disability benefits, disability benefits are very individual. It doesn't really cover anyone else. It just covers you. Whereas in the motor vehicle realm, there is potential compensation for those support that support that you're getting, both in terms of tools and devices and, and adjustments made into the home, as well as the support you might be getting from a spouse or a parent or a sibling, for example. So all of that's super relevant, really, really important. But again, if you're in that situation, you don't know where to start, John. It can be a real mm-hmm. uh, overwhelming challenge about where to go with these kinds of things. And I want individuals to know we're sort of a one-stop shop, more than happy to answer those questions, navigate this, this, these uh, buckets, let's say, of compensation and help you maximize uh, where you can get compensation. I knew that was part of it. I knew it. That's why I asked that question. Look, if you got a, a similar question, if you're thinking the same thing, but you're just not sure where to go, the first step is to uh, to reach out for sure to Tamar and her team. They've answered these questions a billion times, and they'll do it a billion more as long as people don't know. They're ready to uh, to educate. one 821 5900 that number, and help at disabilityrights.ca. Millie, thank you so much for writing in. She just sent an email along. We'll get to that one, but we got to take a short break first and continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. 
And we're back a few minutes to go here in the Disability Law Show. By the way, we love you joining us here on air for the entire hour. If you could spare the whole hour, that's great. If not, bits and pieces is cool. But you can always reach out afterwards and have your own lengthier conversation uh, in private with Tamar or a member of her team anytime. How do you do that? 1-855-821-5900 or email help at disabilityrights.ca. I mentioned Millie tomorrow. Let's get to Millie's email here with the yeah. last few minutes of the show. It says, hey, guys, I've been on LTD and CPP disability for over two years with fibromyalgia and migraines. My insurance provider is sending me to one of those, one of their doctors for a mandatory medical assessment. My doctor has told me that I am permanently off work, so I don't see the point of it. Do I have to attend? Very common question. Millie, I don't see the point of it either, but yes, unfortunately, <laughs> you have to attend. Uh, look, I, I'm being a little bit cheeky, John, but this just this profile just frustrates me just to no end with the disability insurer, right? I mean, so she's CPP approved. That means the federal government has recognized that Millie has a severe and prolonged disability, okay? Basically, yep, it's permanent. Her own doctors are saying permanent. When that word is used, it's pretty clear. You're not going back to work anytime soon. And she's been on disability, long-term disability for some time now. And so it's clear that her profile supports continuing receiving disability benefits. But insurance companies, in their wisdom, will try and use all of the tools at their disposal to try and cut off these claims. Okay. And one of the ways that they try and do this, John, is by having you assessed by one of their own doctors. And this is someone they pay for, by the way. So going into it, you should have sort of a, a degree of cynicism around what the conclusion of this assessment is going to be. Fair enough. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, the most of the disability policies typically have a provision that say, if we think you must. In other words, if we think that you could benefit from an assessment or if we think that we need an independent medical examination, someone other than your own doctors to review you and assess you and determine where you're at from a health perspective, then we're going to ask you to do that. We'll pay for it, but we were going to ask you to attend. And unfortunately for Millie, she has to cooperate. But there are a few important things that she can do to protect herself, I would say, to some extent. If it's going to head in the direction of the insurance company sort of cherry picking information and concluding that perhaps she's not totally disabled. And it's this. The main thing, the main piece of advice that I can give individuals who might be in this situation is make sure your own treatment providers, your own doctors on board, they know about this assessment. They know what the assessment's going to look like. Is it physical? Is it mental health? It really doesn't say, but she should, she should understand and her doctor should understand what's the specialist who's, who's examining her when, how long, you know, what is going to be part of that assessment so that the report then that will be generated from that assessment, no doubt, can also be shared with Millie and her own doctor. It's important to see what's being written to the insurance company about you and your health after an assessment like this, especially because I've seen a number of times, John, where these assessments have lots of inaccuracies in them. Clients will tell me, well, no, I didn't say this, or I said that, or this is actually how it went, and this isn't recorded in the, in the report. Well, guess what? Then you should be making your own notes about this, making your own what was asked, what was tested, and most importantly, how you felt at the end of it. Because a lot of the time, particularly physical assessments, they can go on for several hours, sometimes over two days, John, and then nobody's looking at the individual on day three or day two at the end of the day. 
Are you laid up in bed for a while? What, what are your symptoms like? Are things worse? And if you had the tolerance to do certain things on those limited, limited testing days, doesn't mean that you're going to be able to do it day in and day out. And so that context, what was said, any inaccuracies, you know, what's your own doctor saying? How did you feel afterwards? That context is really, really important in terms of challenging what conclusions the insurance company might draw from this kind of an assessment. Now, look, most of these things, you know, you're, you're being done virtually, John, at this point. So, you know, you might have to sit, be set up in a virtual space. You know, I won't get you started on, you know, what I think about these virtual <laughs> I assessments I know. Right? and how effective they are, especially yeah. physical ones. But anyway, okay. Um, but, you know, if even if it's a mental health one, though, John, it's really, really hard, I think, from a virtual uh, framework to even really truly assess a claimant. And so even underlining that component of it and saying, look, it was done virtually and it was done this way and that way can help to challenge what conclusions were drawn from it. But at the end of the day, it will be several hours of an assessment. A fairly detailed report will be sent to the insurance company. The insurance company will no doubt use that to make decisions around whether or not you're going to continue getting your disability benefit. And once that decision is made, you want to make sure that not only you have that decision in writing, clear explanation of what the insurance company is saying, and a copy of that report. And, and I can tell you, John, sometimes they don't even want to share it. So Millie might not even get it, would you believe? She has right. to get her doctor to ask for it or the insurance company providing it to her doctor so she can finally get a copy of it. And then ultimately, I would even be inclined to get a rebuttal. Like, get your doctor ready to respond to things that are in that report. You know, sometimes it's a specialist. Maybe you need your specialist to respond Either way, if it's going to be the basis for the insurance company to decline your claim, then you want to be ready with your own medical information to support the fact that your you know, health issues are ongoing, that they're deemed permanent by your own doctors, this is why, and that you're not likely to return to any sort of work and therefore meet the test of total disability and should have your benefits continued. There is that, you know, you got to attend this thing, whether it's virtual or otherwise. How about when it goes beyond that? How about types of treatment and your treatment provider? They're going to suggest it, I would assume, because they probably got someone in their pocket working with them as far as providers are concerned. But you can say, no, I'm good. I got my own guys. It's preferred. I, I would say right. it's very yeah. much preferred to go with treatment with your own treatment providers. Just based on the basic of, look, if the insurance company's paying for it, Guess who is going to be favored if if it comes down to, ah, we're not sure, can this person work or not work? It's going to go in the insurance company's favor if they're paying for the treatment. So if you can create some arm's length there and get your own treatment providers on board, then that's always better. I think where it becomes a little more difficult is people saying, look, but I can't afford the treatment. Insurance companies saying they're going to pay for it. I need that benefit. Fair enough. But then make sure that you've got OHIP provided service providers available, like a, like a family doctor or someone who can oversee it. You're not paying out of pocket, but at least you've got someone who's basically on your side who can look at it from your perspective as opposed to just the insurance company's perspective. And with that, we are just about done. As always, Tamar, excellent working with you. You're uh, so informative and you always set everybody in the uh, the straight and narrow with the good advice you want to reach out. By the way, Tamar also does her TV show. You want to find links to that. Simply go to disabilityrights.ca. There's a media tab. You'll catch uh, uh, Tamara TV as well. But during this radio show and afterwards, anytime, one 821 5900 Easy number. We give it out all the time. And help at disabilityrights.ca is where we get our emails from anytime and anytime as well. 
can I say anytime, one more time, by disabilityquestions.com. That is a free service. That uh, site is constructed just for you to reach out, ask your questions. Either Tamar or a member of her team will answer them quickly. It's uh, free, it's anonymous, and it's searchable. So a similar question to yours may already have been uh, answered in full. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll join you next time here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.